0: And welcome to the Weekly Hoon. I'm back. Unfortunately, though, without Peter Bale, who is on a plane at the moment and um, can't make it. And unfortunately, a couple of the guests that I had uh, looked to arrange haven't been able to make it either. So it's going to be one of these um, solo sessions on the Hoon today and i'm really keen to um hear your questions and uh, open it up for a discussion including uh if are game um uh making sure that people can um put their hands up i think you know how to do that in the whole zoom thing and um actually have some human talk (laughs) <laughs> with with our, our paid subscribers on the Kaka. That would be wonderful and so good to see you all uh, joining in again this week. Obviously, last Friday was Good Friday, so we weren't here. And uh, there's been quite a bit that's gone on in the last uh, couple of weeks. And I thought I'd spend the first sort of 15, 20 minutes of the Hoon going through the big uh, uh, events of the last uh, couple of weeks, how we've covered it at the car car, and obviously looking to update you all on uh, how things have uh, shifted uh, with the... Um, Uh, the offer for the kaka and what we've um, decided to go ahead and do in terms of new offerings and the sorts of things that we're looking to do um, to improve the kaka, um, increase the scale of the audience and uh, potentially the scale of the support to um, improve what we're doing. So, um, I really welcome your questions and answers. Throw them into the questions and answers session uh, as we go. Um, And I uh, will try to answer them and have a discussion. And please do put up your hands if you are um, feeling um, keen to get your voice in there and have an actual discussion. Uh, I think we're all... um, uh, um, friendly and grown up enough, <laughs> enough we can do this now and uh, obviously with just me on today um, we're not going to have too many voices um, uh, coming over the top so uh, that's, that's, that's good. Right so let's uh, run through the big events of the week from my point of view and uh, how we've covered them at the Kaka and what I think we should watch for next. And again, uh, looking forward to your questions in the uh, questions and answers and in the chat, which you can also use. So uh, the big thing that came out really on Tuesday morning was a speech from Adrian Orr, the Reserve Bank Governor. Now, it wasn't so much a speech as an interview, a televised interview that he gave, a recorded interview that he gave last Thursday with the acting chief economist for the International Monetary Fund's Asia-Pacific region. So, in a way, it was a bit like the Reserve Bank Governor having a chat with uh, someone whose role it is, in a way, to judge New Zealand and to make sure that we're doing the right things, um, because ultimately, under the post-Bretton Woods arrangements, uh, where people used to have fixed exchange rates and whenever they had a crisis, they had to go to the IMF to ask for help. The IMF was the uh, advisor, the one who said essentially, yes, you've been good boys and girls, you can carry on, or uh, I see you're in a bit of trouble, uh, here's a billion or two to tide you over until you're back in. These are the, um, uh, the people who are literally are working out how much money to give Ukraine, for example, and uh, whenever there's a fresh currency crisis or a balance of payments crisis in the likes of Latin America or Africa, they're the ones that get involved. But they do keep an eye on us as well, even though we have a floating currency now, and of course we issue debt in our own currency, which means that uh, the risks for international investors of uh, New Zealand getting into trouble is much less. I, it's the international investors who take on the currency risk. They're also the ones who take on the exchange rate risk. And therefore, the IMF isn't quite so relevant. But uh, we still, um, it's a bit like, you know, the meeting up with the old headmaster that you went to school with, um, even though you're a grown-up and they're a grown-up. You still treat them a bit like um, the headmaster at the school you're at. So Adrian was there and was asked some questions about how New Zealand coped with COVID, what uh, New Zealand had done with quantitative easing, uh, whether or not um, we had uh, hadn't, had there had been an impact on house prices. Um, yes, there had been. And Adrian Orr uh, was also talking in the day after the Reserve Bank had put up the official cash rate by fifty basis points to one point five percent. Obviously our Reserve Bank um, is looking uh, better than some others at the moment because our Reserve Bank stopped money printing in July last year and started putting up interest rates in October last year. So if you're um, a central bank somewhere else and you're being beaten up by everyone who's saying, uh, you're behind the curve, you need to move much faster. Well, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, even though it may not feel like it here, Uh, can feel confident that um, they moved before others and have been able to uh, at least start the process of monetary tightening. Uh, And uh, even though the rest of the world is still printing, the Fed has stopped, uh, the the Reserve Bank of Australia has stopped, so has the Bank of England, but the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank are not, they're still printing. And in fact, um, the Bank of Japan is, if anything, easing, and that's been one of the great big stories of the last um, couple of weeks is the collapse in the uh, yen versus the US dollar and a bunch of others, simply because US interest rates are getting significantly higher than the rest <laughs> of the world. Also a thing to watch for New Zealand, um, even though we had this amazing inflation number, which for a lot of people was a surprise and a shock. and bad news, in which a lot of people were thinking, oh, that definitely means interest rates are going up. Well, financial markets have been watching this for a long time and have already baked in those expectations of a 6.9% at least uh, increase in inflation. So what we actually saw was a fall, slight fall in wholesale interest rates towards the end of the week here in New Zealand, and a fall in the currency down to 67 US cents, so a good time to be an exporter. Although for the third week, Uh, third fortnight running we had another fall in dairy prices overnight. So here we are with Adrian Orr being interviewed by uh, the IMF um, boss in our region and uh, he said a few interesting things which had some fallout here in um, our political scene. So Adrian Orr made the I think broad comment that central banks would need help from their governments being careful with effective targeted spending. Now, that could be read from a distance as Adrian Orr saying across the road to Grant Robertson, hey, you need to tighten your belt and not spend so much money in my economy and try and be more of a monetary policy mate. You may have heard this phrase, monetary policy mate. And uh, this um, uh, this was jumped on by the opposition uh, Nicola uh, Willis, who I interviewed and uh, included in a podcast on t- t- Wednesday morning, uh, uh, made some comments and said, essentially, the government's spending too much money. It needs to pull its head in and help out and try and reduce some of this pressure on inflation. And look, even the Reserve Bank governor is saying this. You need to help your Reserve Bank governor. Well... Uh, uh, Grant Robertson came out and said uh, on the Tuesday that, uh, "Hey, um, this is mostly an international problem with inflation," and Grant Roberts, uh, Adrian Orr was just speaking generally, and um, no need to change our policy. I asked Grant Robertson whether or not uh, this budget coming up on May the 19th would be a tighter or a looser budget he wouldn't answer that question but actually when you look at the numbers our budgetary situation is tightening so the size of the budget deficit is getting smaller the treasury is estimating that the, the fiscal impulse is actually a detraction of around about three percent of GDP over the next three or four years so when you hear people say the government's spending willy-nilly And um, it's so loose with its money. Well, actually, that's not what the Treasury says. And it's not what you can actually see um, because there's plenty of tax revenue coming in. And, of course, when you bring in more tax revenue than you spend, you're effectively tightening financial conditions. And so uh, that was an interesting little exchange and set us up in a way for the big inflation number that came out yesterday. And in particular, um, the number. We were all expecting somewhere around about 7%. And I was called on to the TVNZ breakfast show yesterday morning uh, to preview the um, inflation result because suddenly... This economic figure, which really wouldn't normally get a lot of attention, was front page news, it was top of the bulletin news, everyone wanted to talk about inflation, why it was so bad, whose fault was it, what are we going to do about it, was it the government's fault, Um, is it an overseas issue, how long is it going to last, because... Quite successfully, the opposition has focused on rising prices and turned it into a, a cost of living crisis, which it is for many people, particularly on lower incomes, who spend almost all of their income on food, on fuel, on rent, because that's where the inflation is. And in terms of inflation that's generated out of New Zealand, it really is a housing story. Now, for some of you, you may you may have seen the piece that I put out uh, early this morning to everyone, uh, free and paid subscribers. And I see there's uh, Robert H. there is asking uh, for some more discussion on the solutions that I suggested at the bottom of that newsletter. If you haven't already seen it, um, have a look. Um, and i um, very keen to, to talk about this. Um, Just for those who haven't read their piece yet uh, or or are looking for some good housing debate fund, my argument today was that uh, all of the debate around inflation, is it the government's fault, is it the overseas fault, uh, should the government be tightening a lot more, um, misses the point. Effectively, both sides are deflecting are in denial and also um, are essentially being disingenuous about the real reasons for inflation in New Zealand. Uh, When you actually have a look at where the local inflation, stuff that you could argue we're responsible for, can be blamed for, can take credit for, it really is about housing and not just rent but also the cost of building new housing and the cost of maintaining housing and uh, all of the costs around it. Um, household Housing and household utilities and in particular house building. So 18% was the increase in the cost of, um, of buying a new home as it's as it spokes makes it sound like, you know, I'm going to buy some petrol at the station, I'll buy a new home, um, uh, which interestingly sort of blurs the line between asset and good and service, and it's always been a problem for housing in the consumer price index, because land is not included in that, and uh, for a lot of people, um, they have to think about the cost of buying their house as a cost of living issue. Uh, But for a lot of other people, they're buying a house as an investment choice. And that is the fundamental issue here. So because our housing market is not generating enough houses, that our housing market is not elastic enough, it's not able to generate new houses when a new demand hits the market, or at least it doesn't do it very quickly, or if it does, the price adjusts um, a lot. Uh, That is a real problem New Zealand, in fact it's the underlying problem inside our entire economy society, politics I'm of the view that we don't so much have an economy, we have a housing market with bits tacked on and from a political point of view it always, always comes back to housing and this choice we have effectively made that a house is not really a place to live, it's a place to park your money, to make leveraged tax free capital gains and By not addressing that issue, both national and labour can essentially say that um, they're doing their best or that it's the other guy's fault. When in effect this decision to not have a flexible housing supply, and those are decisions made by governments and councils around how much infrastructure there is and how much is being spent on pipes and roads and all of those things, how much they invest. And remember, every time you invest for the long term, effectively is a decision not to consume today. And in New Zealand terms over the last 30 years, that has meant we have kept low taxes, we have avoided expensive investments in the future, in the belief that it wasn't needed because we were a low population growth country, and then we unleash the migration taps. And we're still catching up with a infrastructure deficit most people see as at least $50 billion, if not more than $100 billion. And there's no real suggestion of looking to change that. When you look at the planned capital spending uh, by the government over the next four or five years, the government promotes heavily how high it is. Gee, look, it's $18 billion. Well, $18 billion doesn't really cut it when you've got a deficit of $50 billion and your population uh, is probably still going to be rising. That was one of the other little um, uh, factoids that popped up this week that I thought was interesting. There's been an explosion in the number of work visas issued in March by Uh, MBIE, a record high for any one month. Essentially, the government has uh, opened up the migration taps, in part because there's a whole bunch of New Zealanders leaving for their OEs and also because frankly they can get 30, 40 per cent pay increases and pay $100 a week less in rent in Australia. Um, So there's a lot of employers saying please can you let me hire someone in from overseas and now MB and the government are saying yes. Uh, And that is um, something to keep an eye on in terms of population growth because if we get back onto the track where we were increasing our population by 100,000 a year without building the houses to go with it, on top of the infrastructure deficit we've got, the very same uh, housing supply issues will um, be a problem in, in future. Uh, so uh, one of the interesting uh, things that cropped up, and there's a there's a question here from uh, Robert H. about how we can... Uh, um, Uh, Solve some of these problems. I just wanted to sort of give you a a big picture uh, view, a big project, I suppose you could call it, Um, an idea that's been um, stewing in my thoughts for a few years now and is um, really easy for me to uh, pop up and to um, uh, surface, as they say in the trade, get it out there, because I'm unelectable and unemployable, uh, and it's, it's fun and it's actually my role to um, put things out there that most people don't want to put their head above the parapet and, and claim responsibility for, but may actually quite like it that somebody else is doing it. So uh, we have a problem. We don't invest enough in infrastructure for housing or for climate change. And in effect, they are the same story. So that is the problem of uh, not having uh, enough money, at least able to raise enough money uh, by borrowing or by just having the money in the bank to uh, invest in the roads and the railways and the pipes and the medium density housing that we need to ensure people are safe and warm and dry close to work most likely needing to walk cycle bus maybe a train or i actually think it's too late for trains now uh, to um, reduce our carbon emissions improve our um, housing affordability livability and, and improve our well-being so we know what we need to do we need to invest in half a million houses in our big cities, so Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, Tauranga, Hamilton, Dunedin, Uh, you know we're talking maybe a bit of Rotorua, Napier Hastings, those sorts of areas, half a million houses. And remember we just produced 48,000 houses in a year uh, which was a record high in terms of numbers so you'd have to do that 10 years in a row which would be um, quite a bit higher than what our system is set up for and what we expect. Most people in the market expect there to be boom and bust and to be able to have that high level flat for a long time would be completely break the model of property development and and also building supply. Most of the market is set up to quickly pull the plug and get out before they get stuck with the baby when it's all going pear-shaped. And there are some ugly signs at the moment, particularly in the last couple of weeks. Some property developers have fallen over in Auckland. There's a couple of big projects that have been put on the market, half-built. And we're starting to see the first signs of this, um, what I call market-turning moment, when house prices or apartment prices stop rising. In fact, they start to fall a bit. Expectations that you can make money simply by holding on to the unit or um, selling at a higher price later on, uh, they're, they're starting to go. Obviously, mortgage rates are up from where they were a year ago. The, resi- the banks have um, been pushed back into the box by uh, the higher LVRs. And um, we're certainly uh, seeing uh, um, a slowdown go on there. And uh, uh, that issue of having a very high level of house building of the right types of houses, so typically smaller one, two bedroom studio apartments, smaller floor space, uh, much less carbon intensive because you're sharing a lot of the the walls and... um, ensuring that uh, you are building more densely, closer to public transport routes and also to where people work and go to school and all of those things. That's what's needed. I don't think anyone really debates that, actually. Uh, I know there's there's still a lust to build a big old four-bedroom, three-garage place on the edge of town with a big old back section. And uh, good luck to you but you'll have to pay a lot of money for the infrastructure for it um, or make someone else pay. And uh, you'll have to drive a long way at a very high cost to do that in the long run. And actually, a lot of the people who who want to buy a new house or live in a new house or new dwelling aren't actually that keen on the whole um, living on the edge of the town in a pseudo-lifestyle block or... Um, uh, having a chunk of land. We all understand why the financial incentives are there, i.e. to get rich in New Zealand you need to own land, particularly residential zone land. In fact, don't even have to have a house on it, just sit there and wait for it to appreciate as councils fail to build the infrastructure necessary to build a lot of the houses so that your, um, essentially the value of the land keeps rising significantly faster than wages and prices and all of that. And uh, so that's why people buy sections, which have a relatively large amount of land per dwelling, unlike apartments and townhouses. So um, that is what we need. So h- how do we actually do that? Because our building market isn't set up for that. We have a lot of quite small building uh, companies, uh, one-man and their son and the dog on the back of the double cab ute. Quite a bit of that going on. It's starting to coagulate into some bigger market share companies, although many of them operate franchise models and aren't able to um, pull together their balance sheets and reduce some of the risks there. Uh, But uh, we're still a very fractured and splintered market for housing. So what you need is big operators with a lot of capital and experience and the ability to build sometimes quite complicated buildings which you can get with these three, three, four story uh, uh, buildings and they need to be um, there's a lot of work involved, you need consents, you need to do design work, it's not just um, whack a a house down on a section and uh, that's difficult, we're not set up for it Um, even though we're getting slightly better particularly in the townhouse area and that is, um, that's an important uh, thing to know. So, how do we actually do it? Well, to really understand uh, why we've been so bad at it, we need to understand how little we have put in capital in a, from, a, from a public balance sheet point of view, i.e. the government, and that also includes councils. Because remember, councils are quite limited in how much they can borrow, by the agreements they have with the local government funding agency, which of course is run by Treasury and the government. And the government's quite nervous about letting councils borrow because if they're big ones, like Auckland, Auckland could borrow so much that it reduces the sovereign credit rating, which would scare the bejesus out of of everyone. So um, effectively the councils are in lockstep with the government. And remember, we have a triple A credit rating and Auckland has a double A credit rating. They are incredibly strong credit ratings. There's huge demand for these bonds. But both the government and the council have been so very focused on keeping those credit ratings and doing their best they can, they believe, to keep interest rates low because they believe that's the way to get ahead, uh, in a world where, if you keep interest rates low, that pushes up asset prices and um, ensures that your median voters, who need to see their asset prices rising and keep interest rates low, are relatively happy. And so do uh, so. And Treasury and the likes believe that the financial markets are happy. That was actually based on a model from the. Uh, late 90s, um, early 90s, in which bond fund managers were often described as bond vigilantes, i.e. they could um, get very aggressive with governments and tell them what to do. Governments had to be very careful about running deficits, otherwise their interest rates quickly spiked up. But that was 20 years ago. Uh, Now there is so much cash flushing around the world. I that is controlled by people who just want to put it in a government bond. They're already rich. Their main aim is to just keep their wealth. And the safest asset in the world is a government bond because governments have the power to tax. And in a global sense, that means the US Treasury market because the United States is the only government that has nuclear-powered aircraft carriers that are able to project power uh, across the other side of the world talk about that a little bit later from a Chinese point of view, but uh, that's one of the uh, interesting um, bits and pieces around the bond markets and why our financial, I would like to say advisors, but uh, the people who are in Treasury and the Reserve Bank have this belief that unless we're good boys and girls, we're going to get punished by the bond markets, it's a belief um, driven by horrible experiences in the mid to late 80s, early 90s, when we weren't borrowing in our own currency, when we didn't, at least at in the initial part, have a floating currency, and we weren't issuing fixed interest rate securities, which we are now. And because we are doing that now, we have, our government has assumed a lot less of the interest rate and exchange rate risk, which can be dangerous when you have some sort of crisis. And you often hear this phrase, oh, we've got to build up a rainy day fund for the next crisis, you know, the earthquake or the volcanic eruption, or the next financial crisis, you know, and we've had at least two of those in our living, in our lifetimes, obviously, global financial crisis, and now the COVID crisis. Uh, and of course the Christchurch earthquakes Um, and uh, on the face of it it looked like having very low debt at the time seemed a good thing we were able to borrow relatively cheaply at the time and that's true but the thing is the rest of the world has moved on so our net debt to GDP of uh, just uh, just over 30% in theory it's going to go to 40% but I would eat my hat if it actually gets there we're effectively repaying it at a huge rate of knots Partly because uh, there's so much inflation and that nominal GDP growth means that the denominator and the net GDP, debt to GDP number is um, very quickly growing and therefore the net debt to GDP number is falling quite quickly. So uh, all of this means that our government is stuck in an early 90s mindset about debt, particularly debt that can be used to pay for infrastructure in the long run, because debt for publicly funded infrastructure that is used by the public, that generates productivity growth, uh, uh, is going to be the thing that actually um, grows the economy and grows productivity in the long run. But to do that, you have to have voters who are happy to give up a little bit of consumption now to maybe have a slightly higher tax rate, but uh, be happy that the benefits are going to be smeared out or or, uh, achieved or received. In future, by future generations, perhaps because we have better housing affordability and perhaps because we've actually achieved our climate change ambitions and we don't face a huge climate change bill from the United Nations or the European Union or whoever it is is going to say to us, uh, you guys failed and you need to buy a bunch of carbon credits or we stop trading with you. Um, That is the potential risk if we don't get it right. So point number one, we need to build these half a million houses. Point number two, we need to find a financing mechanism to do it, which effectively means that we can borrow to build these things and then repay it over the long run through economic growth and, uh, and productivity growth. And uh, we need to do it in a way that is politically acceptable. And this is often the painful thing because both parties are able to um, say, oh, well, we can't do that. People won't accept a tax increase, particularly if it's a capital gains tax increase, because, look, we had three elections on this and anyone who proposed it lost. And that is true. Uh, however, um, the debate's gone on and the various polls show that there's more support for a capital gains tax than there was. Uh, however, um, I think, I actually agree with them. It would be really, really hard to get a capital gains tax through, in part because uh, there's so much uncertainty about how it would be applied. There's also quite a big ramp up in how long it takes to get the money in. Uh, it creates an industry of people looking to get around it. And uh, it, isn't, it isn't a fun tax or easy tax to apply. And the best taxes are the ones that are simple. They are broad. They are low rate and they are impossible to get out of. <laughs> so uh, when you look at the New Zealand experience, we're actually quite good at designing taxes like that. And we've done it with income tax, where we have now three um, particular thresholds. It used to be two. Uh, the dream was to have one. And uh, everyone pays it. PAYE um, is a pretty effective way to um, collect money for income paid through wages and salaries. And then there's GST, which we've probably uh, created the most efficient, uh, uh, brilliantly perfect uh, value-added tax, consumption tax in the world, in that we've exempted virtually nothing. And you don't have these horrible situations where you have to make a decision about whether a cake in a box is food (laughs) or not Uh, which you see in other countries not a lot of fun and uh, it's a very effective way to hoover up money however it is essentially regressive because what it means is if you are relatively poor and you're getting an income you're spending a hundred percent of that on goods and services and so your spending is captured by that tax When you're only spending 60% of the income and you're saving the rest of it or investing the rest of it, that's not captured by the GST. So you'd hope, of course, that you've got some sort of tax which captures that part that's missed out by the GST. Well, if you put your money in a term deposit account or a savings account, yes, it is captured in that you will see um, uh, a uh, withholding tax take that out. So you can see why a lot of people don't love putting their money into a term deposit account. But there is one asset that is a sure thing in that it's not very volatile downwards. It can be volatile upwards, but that's good if you're an investor. Uh, You can leverage it, which you can't with a lot of other assets. Uh, You can see it, you can live in it as a last resort. And uh, you know deep down that frankly, it's government guaranteed. That the government will act in whatever uh, is the event to stop prices from completely collapsing like they do in other markets. You know, share markets drop 30, 40%, and then they come back 50%. You'd never see that in a housing market. Uh, So what we effectively have is a housing market here where prices ratchet up, they may hold for a bit, might drop one two percent, five percent, which is what we're seeing at the moment. I actually think we're headed for you know maybe a ten percent max fall at the moment, and then we're on to the next next level up. And you can see why the decisions in early 2020 to effectively remove the uh, LVR restrictions and to print 55 billion dollars had such an impact. People could suddenly see they could borrow. Buy this land or this new uh, thing off the off the uh, off the plan, and lo and behold, the prices went up. So that's that's the reason that huge flood of cash and leverage into, a, in theory, a normal product, a house, uh, which we've seen flow through into the consumer price index, and which isn't really being addressed by either party. Uh, so. Um, there's the, just a recap. We need to build the houses. We need to find a financing mechanism for it. A capital gains tax is probably not politically acceptable and it needs to be a broad-based low-rate tax that is impossible to avoid. So what do we do? Well, there is actually one way that you could raise money, a regular stream of money, which you could use to service let's say, a couple of hundred billion dollars worth of debt which you'd use to invest in infrastructure. In fact, if you were being really sneaky, you could call it a levy. Now, a levy, not a, f- not a tax. This is a levy, it's not a tax. Uh, and in fact, if you're being really um, uh, careful and you wanted to present this as not just another tax grab, uh, that this was actually a special levy, a fee, on something to help pay for the infrastructure which would effectively make us all richer in the long run, and that money was being dedicated to that thing, what they call a hypothecated fund, then that may, may make it more politically acceptable. And from a, frankly, a uh, borrowing point of view, if you're a standard in and Fitch, you like the idea of a hypothecated fund because you know that it's suddenly not going to disappear and be used to um, do something dodgy. And we've seen this, the National Land Transport Fund, which has been used to um, build our motorways and roads and a few railways uh, and to maintain those, that transport system and begin to properly subsidise public transport, has been quite effective. Although there's a particular problem now that uh, the way that, that fund is uh, topped up every year, which is to charge a levy on fuel, Is uh, not long for this world Um, when we stop buying fuel because we've all got electric cars. That is a problem for the National Land Transport Fund. In fact, the government's actually reviewing that at the moment. Uh, That aside, how do you create a hypothecated fund that is serviced by a levy from something that is a broad-based low-rate tax and then ensure that the money gets spent properly and effectively to lower house prices relative to incomes and rents, and also to achieve our climate change goals. So those half a million houses, how do we make sure they get built at a reasonable cost and a reasonable time and are funded mostly by debt but serviced by this levy. So my proposal, which I'll put into a um, more detailed uh, thing which you can all share around, is for what I call the big project. This is a national effort to solve our housing affordability and climate change and in effect child poverty problems because again it's always about housing if you're stressed about where you're going to live and you can't afford to pay the rent and you're having to move out of one private rental to the next and your child is bouncing through three schools in four years that's child poverty right there that's intergenerational poverty right there solve the housing issue solve your transport issues, you reduce the costs of living and improve well-being, and also reduce your carbon emissions. So that's the big project. The way to fund it is with a very low rate tax on residential zoned land. That is um, a way to avoid the problem of taxing a whole bunch of uh, uh, agricultural land and iwi land, which is not as high value and you can sort of understand farmers saying hang on a minute why am I paying a tax to pay for someone else's house or motorway in a city I don't even live in a city sort of fair enough although you could have some fun arguing that um, farmers should also help um, pay to clean up the environment and, uh, and also get ready for this carbon zero age but we're sort of mixing oil and water a bit here. Probably best to keep it simple. And we all know which land is residential zoned or not. It's all there in the land records. And that's how we get our rates measured. We know what the land value is. We absolutely know what it is. And we agree on it. It is discovered every three years. We get that little note in the mail that says, Your uh, house and land is worth X, and the land is worth Y, and the house, which is a pretty crappy house, is worth Z. It's actually the Y that's the really valuable thing. And we know whether it's residential zoned or not because there'll be a land information memorandum. And so there's no real getting away from it. You own the land. That's one of the beauties of our English-style system of individuals uh, owning land. You own the land, or maybe it's the trust. Well, the trust has to pay it then. Uh, And um, you put a cost on uh, owning that land, of holding that land, particularly if it doesn't have a house on it. That's one of our biggest issues is land banking. And so my proposal would be for a uh, 0.1% land tax, which would mean that, We have residential zone land, by my measurings and uh, checkings with various um, people who do this, it's worth about a trillion dollars. So that's $10 billion worth of revenue from a new tax every year. That is more than enough to um, service a couple of hundred billion dollars in debt. And... That is 0.1% of the value of your land paid every year as, let's call it, a climate and housing infrastructure levy. And it goes into that fund, and that fund is managed by a new body, which may not do the actual building, but it has the power to work closely with councils to invest in that infrastructure to make sure that councils don't say, oh, we can't afford it. Well, yeah, we've hit our borrowing limits, and my ratepayers won't let me do it." Well, that's what the Housing and Climate Infrastructure Fund is for, and that's what the 0.1% levy is for. Uh, no more complaints about, "Well, you know, we're not going to build that suburb on the edge of town, or even build, uh, rebuild the um, brownfields one." We're just going to, uh, we're just going to say no. You know, because we don't want all these extra people coming and clogging up the roads and, you know, I know it it means that the house prices go up. It's sad, isn't it? It's very sad for the young people. But, you know, it's the way it is because we can't afford to uh, have higher rates or higher debt. Well, who says so? Well, the people who (laughs) own the houses and vote in council elections. And then uh, you'd have to have someone, and I'm suggesting... um, because I can and I won't lose my job if I do, (laughs) that it would be uh, a combination of the Infrastructure Commission, Order, so Housing New Zealand, um, uh, the Climate Commission, and uh, some sort of body which has the ability to uh, plan for all this and work with councils. So what we're talking about here is a bit like a reserve bank of housing and climate infrastructure, whose job it is to set the settings to achieve a particular goal. Now we know what one of the goals is, it's net zero by 2050. It should probably be net zero by a bit earlier, we know we need to do that now. But net zero by 2050, let's say that's one of the goals. What would the housing affordability goal be? Well, I can put my hand up and say, eh, we shouldn't have houses that cost more than 30% of your disposable income to to rent or, or to buy actually. And that um, the deposits shouldn't take longer than four or five years to save. And uh, if we can't build houses for that cost, maybe the way to do it is to, you know, Uh, have leasehold land so that you're not effectively paying the cost of the land. And remember the government and councils have an awful lot of land which has been poorly used. So um, what you say to this new body is your job, and we'll sack you if you don't do it, your job, empowered by the parliament, but we're not going to mess around week by week and tell you you can't um, do that bridge or you can't uh, uh, put that... um, made our way through there, we're going to give you the power to say, we need to build this many houses, we have this much funding, this generates an improvement of affordability of X, and it generates a reduction of emissions of Y from both transport and from housing. And you say to the CEO of this organisation, that's your role, get on with it. The political cycle isn't going to mess with your head. In the same way, that the political cycle doesn't mess with the official cash rate, we hope. Uh, And that is, um, I think, the big project which we could use to break this political stalemate and actually get some stuff done fast enough to make a difference so that we avoid another generation being mired in poverty, another generation of very weak productivity growth, another generation of hoping someone does something about climate change and never actually seeing anything happen. And also just massively improved wellbeing where people are living in warm, dry houses close to where they live, close to their friends and family, able to put down roots, feel ownership of a place and not feel like um, there is no point. Talk to some of these young people about how they feel about losing the prospect ever of owning their own home and being able to start their own family off their own bat. They know they're going to have to go crawling to their friends and family, and um, I've made this joke before. You may have heard it that the New Zealand version of Tinder or Bumble should have a tick box that says whether or not your parents own property. I mean, you've been watching Bridgerton lately, or uh, you know um, any of that Jane Austen stuff? That's where we are at. A landed gentry. This is not us. We need to fix this. Um, Easy for me to say. So, hey, I've, I've rambled on for 45 minutes. So I better answer some freaking questions. Uh, so I'm going to run through the ones that are in the chat, and I can see I've got six in the Q&A. So I hope you don't mind if I just go through them. Some of them maybe I've answered. Um, maybe I've created more questions with my idea than others. And I need to put it down on paper as well so that you can all um, pick it apart, which is the whole point. So... Um, Brett is saying he's skeptical of house prices dropping any time in the next while. I sort of agree with you, uh, Brett, about a significant fall. And when I say significant, I mean thirty to forty percent, which is what we actually need, and which our banking system could cope with, and I think our economy could too. But uh, politically, it's seen as not possible, and the Reserve Bank has now backed itself into a corner where it uses the housing market effectively as a as a wealth uh, um, effect tool and it's a problem um, uh, and that even the government and the Reserve Bank can't stop it because while they're doing things actually I don't think the government and the Reserve Bank want those prices to fall that much they they can deal with 10% but 30 or 40% that's not going to fly not in the year before an election so um, thank you Brett it's great to see you Brett and see some of these names crop up so regularly in our uh, commentary and in our hearings it really is fantastic it's been a a great week in many ways um, to know that what we're doing is useful and that um, it's relevant and uh, has some value for, for people um, it's been really um, gratifying and humbling. Right, so Doug, uh, interested in your view on the impact of a market downturn on the different quartiles across the housing market, the balance of impact. Will government policies continue to create an effective floor on the lower end of the market? That's actually a really interesting question. And there are some people, uh, including Nicola Willis and the National Party, who think you can have your cake and eat it too. That you can have a lowering of effective dwelling prices, but not a lowering of house and section prices. And the way that you do that is you build lots and lots of these medium density, townhousey, apartmenty things where there isn't much land value in each of them. And you do it at such scale that the cost starts to, to drop per dwelling, which would be nice. But at the same time, um, because people are buying those, and somehow they're also going to be renting and buying the ones on the edge of town, or in the middle of town, the typical you know Kiwi quarter-acre block, or more, <laughs> more likely... It's a smaller block than that, or maybe it was a quarter acre block with three infills on it. um, That is, uh, that somehow those prices wouldn't drop in nominal terms. I think that's a bit uh, cute, and that uh, if you saw a big drop in prices for the costs of new apartments and townhouses, which reflected some change in interest rates and population and tax rules you would see I think some falls in those prices out on the edge but the question you're asking a bit is about the balance of quartiles and what you're essentially suggesting I think is that you would see more price falls at the bottom than at the top and you end up with this magical point where the media <laughs> hasn't moved much mm, we'll see uh, but certainly, there are some interesting things happening in Auckland. And if you were interested in moving to Auckland and buying an apartment or townhouse any time in the next couple of years, which I have to admit I I am, uh, then um, now's now's the time not to worry too much about missing out <laughs> missing out on the next twenty percent of house price rises. We've seen a couple of apartment um, developers collapse, and you, I pointed that out in the dawn courses this weak. Millennials dominating Parliament will do it. Ah, okay, boomer. Yes. There's uh, one close S- Swarbrick. Uh, there's a couple of others in there. Chris Bishop actually um, is an interesting character. Uh, but I am not seeing the sorts of um, people able to make a difference. Partly because some of them gravitate towards the Green Party and that is a problem because the Green Party... Uh, does not ever see itself helping a national party form a government which means it has no leverage in any negotiations with Labour and therefore its policies, even if it had a chunk of the vote, are cancelled out by the fact it has no leverage uh, I'm sort of amazed that this has not registered with the bulk of voters in the Green Party, that they're effectively voting always for Labour when they vote Green Um Maybe it feels better. Maybe they feel like they're in the right team. Uh, Whatever it is, it's a waste of time. It's a bit rude, isn't it? I I like lots of people in the Green Party, and um, a lot of their policies I quite like as well. The trouble is they'll never be implemented. Now, uh, the movement towards New Zealand suburbia in the sixties was in part a reaction against the brutalist apartment tower blocks seen by New Zealand overseas in their OE. Oh, the brutalist apartment blocks. Yes. Um, they did look ugly in 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 uh, in London. Do you know what they sell for now, those? Yeah, I don't know if you know that there were those tower blocks in the centre of London. <sighs> I wish I knew remember their names. They were brutal things. Incredibly expensive <laughs> to buy now. And actually quite useful and if they're properly you know renovated and uh, fitted out inside they're fantastic so i know there's this um i mean i grew up on a farm and i spent my whole life thinking who'd live in an apartment but i've been living in an apartment for a couple of years that's pretty bloody good actually it means i never have to mow the freaking lawn sometimes i like mowing the lawn but gardening god anyway Uh, Also, I get to zip zip around Wellington on a scooter. It's great fun and and not have to worry too much about my car. If I can get rid of a car, that'd be great. So I think that you're right. In the 60s, that was the case because cars were relatively cheap and they got much cheaper. And also the cost of the fuel relative to your income actually dropped a lot. So it made a lot of sense until everyone bought one. And everyone tried to drive to work or around town, and then there was traffic congestion, so that didn't really work. So uh, I think younger generations of new home buyers are fine with apartments and townhouses, particularly if it means they're close to work and they don't have to own a car or get a bloody driver's license. Have you ever tried to get a driver's license? Um, it's hard. There's poor, poor young buggers. They've applying and failing all the time to get their driver's licenses. I flew through mine at the age of 15 um, simply because I could hold a steering wheel. It's, anyway. So, uh, yeah, I don't. I think the impression that uh, New Zealanders hate apartment blocks and will never live in them, I think that's wrong for a generation younger than their 40s or so because I, they've lived overseas in apartments and sometimes it's fun. And actually there's a lot more apartments in Auckland and Wellington in particular than we remember from our youths, and some of them are quite fun to live in. Not fun to own, and a lot of people see the apartments through the lens of it being an investment choice. And they haven't been as successful as suburban sections. Why? Because they don't have as much land. And also they're a little bit more complicated. You've got body corporates, leasehold, you know, oh, my God, uh, you know, can we just give me a house with a section and a house on it, and that'll be simple, and I'll own it, and I don't have to deal with Joe blogs at the Body Corporate, and I don't have to worry about some some ewee putting up my leasehold land or the Cornwall Park Trust or whatever. Um, so you can see why a bunch of people who've adjusted to the fact that houses are not places to live, they are things to invest in, you can see why they don't love apartments. Apartments can be quite nice to live in, but if you're looking to make massive um leveraged tax-free capital gains on the inflation the value of the land not so much and of course then we've had the leaky buildings and the quakey buildings problem which is a pain um please let me remind everyone that wellington is a bad place (laughs) to build a city what were they thinking anyway um shoddy buildings yes we're not very good at building these things we need to get better we need to do it by doing it um Uh, The brutalist apartment blocks thing again. Hey, for those people who've ever driven along Duvois Road or Remiwera Road, and there's those single, I think there's two towers on each of them. They were built in the late 60s, early 70s, before uh, Auckland downzoned and banned these things as evil, brutalist um, aping of all the failures of Europe. What we need is villas. We all want to live in a villa. <laughs> and within 10 minutes' drive of town, we can all do it. I don't know how, but... Well, we won't have any population growth. That's fine. Until we did. And uh, so, yeah, I... Uh, I, th- It would have been great, actually, if those apartment blocks, that you, the one of them that's on Jervois Road and the one of them that's on Rimura, if there had been 100 of them along those ridges. Maybe we wouldn't have had the brutal housing affordability problems we've had. Um, As you saw, David's put up a Prime TV article about living hell apartment disasters. Ah, There's plenty of those stories, that's true. You may not see the stories of happy places that apartments can be. Uh, uh, Lots of people are twitchy about apartments. You're right. Um, This is from Brett saying, uh, you don't know who's going to make you pay vast amounts of money down the line. Exactly. That's the risk. And this is where I think maybe the government can get involved to reduce some of those fears and risks, in particular around uh, leaky buildings and the whole issue that councils face at the moment, where they're the last line of defence. When something goes wrong, the developer always falls over and um, can never be seen again. Um, You have to track them down by... Uh, where they last sold the Ferrari. Um, you know, that's why councils are always saying no, because they don't want the risk of something being leaky. Well, shouldn't the government get involved in, A, helping people really come up with some, uh, some set plans and ways of building these things that we know are safe? And one way to do that is to have a government guarantee of um, the safety of these buildings, now, maybe that means the government does the um, consenting and uh, comes up with the pre-cooked plans and the standards. Well, that's what it does anyway. It should be doing that. And at the moment, um, it's the only one with a balance sheet that needs it. And if it doesn't fix it, it will end up with the liabilities in the long run and the social costs and the lost productivity and uh, the financial pain of having to pay those, those uh, buy those carbon credits. If J M asks if the Labor government decides to return debt to 25 to 35 percent of GDP, would that be sufficient to improve infrastructure enough to stabilise or lower house prices, rather than 20 to 30? Well, the old rule, uh, this is pre 2019, was uh, that we need to get debt as fast as we could under 20 percent. And in fact, National in the last year in 2017 said, ah, 20% is not low enough. We need to go down to 15%. Um, And then Labor said in 2019, this is pre-COVID. Yeah, we'll have this range, 15 to 25, which gave it some wriggle wound to go up to 25. Uh, But that's not enough. 5% of GDP? Um, It's not nearly enough to get to solve our problems, uh, particularly catching up with a deficit of 70 billion. And so remember that our GDP is around about now 350 billion dollars a year. So 10% is 35 billion. 5% is 17 and a half billion or whatever the number is. Uh, It's not nearly enough. It needs to be 50 or 60. Now a lot of people get very nervous (laughs) about that. Meanwhile our other AAA-rated partners are at least 60, more like 100 right now, aren't they? They're not being killed by the bond markets. So, um, yeah. But if you want to be really sure about it, well, why don't you have a hypothecated fund that's off the Crown's balance sheet? That's what the the um, Land Transport Fund and Housing New Zealand are doing right now, actually, and that's what National have said that would be quite okay with uh, and actually would fit with the Treasury rule about having net core crown debt uh, being no more than 20%. I actually think we need to um, drop these targets completely Uh, if you look at the IMF and the OECD and the World Bank they are saying, uh, yeah if you're an emerging market country with a fixed currency and you know, a history of coups yeah, we'd quite like a, a limit, something you would commit to But for New Zealand, this is 1984-style thinking. It just doesn't make any sense. I actually think um, if we're going to have any rules or levels that we commit everyone to over multiple decades and 15 changes of government, it should be net zero. It should be housing costs, no more than 30% of disposable income. That's the sort of level we should be at, not 20% of GDP debt, and we're doing it to... Um, prostrate ourselves in front of a bunch of um, bond fund managers who barely know where we are on the map, let alone care about our people. Um, So uh, I hope I'm not being rude there. J.M., I I think um, if you're going to have to have one, I actually think it should be 60. That's actually much lower than our peers and uh, not out of line with Australia. Um, That would be enough to get us cracking. But actually, I think what we need to do is use the opportunity of a wealth tax, which is what my um, idea of a uh, housing and climate infrastructure levy would be, to actually um, impose some costs on holding land without building houses. So the other thing I didn't mention in my um, uh, big project plan, 0.1% for residential zoned land every year, 1% for residential zoned land that has no houses on it. So that imposes a ticking cost for the land bankers and uh, would be one way to solve that problem. Um, BT says, my problem is an apartment would suit me well, but just as helplessly at the linked article. <laughs> okay. I would prefer a property transaction tax paid by vendors at the time of settlement. Simple, broad, low rate. I mean, that's a re- really good um, uh other option. And in Australia, they have these um, stamp duties. Stamp duty sounds much better than a land tax. Stamping sounds like something that's fun, <laughs> isn't it? Tax is a bad word. No, um, the problem with stamp duties is that they effectively um, increase the cost of transactions. So that's well, it's, it's actually by definition. But every time they do that, it means people are more likely to hold on to their house for longer. And um, also it's vulnerable to a big increase well, more more in particular a big fall in the volume of properties so what happens in our market and in many markets is that you see you know during a boom lots of houses get sold and lots of money comes in so it effectively becomes a pro-cyclical tax generation device and in a way it can incentivize booms whereas a simple every year it's collected 0.1 percent of the land value is not vulnerable to big jumps in numbers of transactions and the likes. Uh, The Australians love it and um, they are lucky in that their states have more power to raise taxes than our councils do. Uh, And it's really worked in places like Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane where there are, the incentives are right for state governments to build infrastructure to get lots of um, apartments built. So, um, Dara, great uh, point, and uh, I um, have thought about this a bit, and actually it's a good idea for an article which compares and contrasts the different ways to do wealth tax, capital gains tax versus stamp duty versus land tax. Okay, Dara asks, payable on every property sale and purchase, including the family home, which is no longer the family home when you're selling. Um, one of the things about a land tax on all residential zone land, it covers the owner-occupied. And that's one of the big problems with capital gains tax. It, it, it doesn't capture the wealth created by people living in their own homes. And um, it's one of the fundamental issues. It's somehow, you know, living in your own home is different. Well, if you treat it like an investment, which a lot of us do, it should be treated like an investment, not as a home. Um, you know, we've got to make up our minds. And... Uh, uh, or one of the other things I, me- I mentioned the 0.1% land tax You know, what about the granny in Remuera who's living in the old state house that's worth $3 on the land that's worth $3 million? or more likely $30 million. Um, how is she going to be able to pay the $300,000 tax a year, <laughs> a year? Chick, her pension doesn't pay for that and um, the grandkids certainly aren't well, true well there's ways to do that you just simply say to nana um you don't have to pay this year uh, it's on your account at um, the government we won't even charge you interest and when you pop your clogs that's when it's paid when you sell the property so it in effect it becomes an estate tax uh, if you were a, a politician who was being mean you'd call it a death tax uh, uh, it certainly works and um, avoids those sorts of problems. So here's a question then. What policies and regulations need to be in place to ensure that buyers can buy an apartment with a reasonable degree of safety and trust that the building doesn't turn out to be a badly designed That is an excellent question. There's been various attempts to try and solve these issues. No one's really grasped it because no one wants to take, when I say no one, the government, doesn't want to take the financial risk for no good reason, other than they just don't like adding a potential liability to their books. in effect, increasing net debt. Remember, it's all about the net debt track. So, um, in my view, it's the government which has the balance sheet and the time horizon to take these sorts of risks on, and in effect, it is just offsetting the risk of having to pay a lot of um, carbon credits in 10, 20 years' time, or um, having to pay for another hospital because there's a whole bunch of sick kids who are stressed and uh, mentally ill and have skin infections and chest infections because they're living in a shitty housing. Sorry, I shouldn't get quite so grumpy about this, but um, this is a really good question and actually is one I will remember and try to focus on when trying to come up with these series of solutions. Um, Brett says bring on the land tax Yay Brett Good." Uh, DM asks legislation to discourage land banking Empty houses Well this is where you know If you've got an empty house And suddenly you're having to pay every year a land tax That will um, focus your mind Uh, And a 1% land tax instead of a 0.1% land tax um, Simply because you don't have a house on it That'll focus your mind too Particularly if you've got a lot of land And uh, that changes the incentives Why not have a special, J.I. writes, why not have a special NIMBY rate to live in the remote suburbs without access to natural resources Uh, for those forced to live in the remote suburbs without access? I think the way to deal with this is just to have the same rate for everyone. And if you have an awful lot of land, you're going to be paying a little bit more. Well, maybe you should think about that before you, when you're living there. Uh, whether it reduces the price of the land, it may well do. That's the deal. Uh, it stuns me that the government has been it Stuns me the government's been so silent on developments falling over. Yeah, uh, one of the real risks here is that the um, private building market stops, like it did in two thousand eight nine. All bunch of these apprentices have just been trained. Go oh there's no job oh look there's a plane to Sydney I'm off (laughs) and that's exactly what they did in 2008-9 and it took us a decade to rebuild that skill and actually be able to build 48,000 houses in a year so yes the government needs to keep an eye on this one uh, and that's a reminder for me to ask Megan Woods and um, Porter Williams a few questions about land tax uh, David, what about a tax on those who insist on in living in new divisions ever further from city centres, which are costly to service? Well, it's a great question, David. Hello, David. Great to see you there. Um, I think that, uh, in effect, um, with the sorts of development contributions that are going into these areas, in effect, there is going to be a sort of an extra tax on living on the fringes and uh, that's in a way what a carbon tax should be as well um, uh, and congestion charges uh, one of the things I also didn't mention in my grand plan is that um, for this this body to be able to target carbon zero from transport and housing and housing affordability you need to be able to do a congestion charge as well uh, to help pay for public transport and also to provide some demand management and uh, I think that's that makes it really expensive to live on the fringes and be commuting back and forth every every day. That's one way to do it. What about a turnover tax on those trading on New Zealand currency? Yeah, Gary, I, I, I sort of like that idea. Uh, the one thing from a political point of view is, is it doesn't have any obvious connection to the problems we have with land costs or also the issue with infrastructure. And there'd be a bunch of people who'd say, oh, this is just a tax grab and you're gonna use it for your special projects. Whereas the hypothecated land value tax seems to be uh, a good one. Uh, C asks, land value tax makes sense, but do we need to offset it by reducing income tax? No. That's the point of a wealth tax that isn't offset with some sort of swappy thing. Um, actually, just quietly, we need to increase the size of government and the size of the tax take to increase our investment in public infrastructure. Because all the studies around the world and what's actually happened in places like Denmark and Finland and even Britain, France, all of these places, they have high tax rates. They invest in public services, they have better healthcare systems, they have better public transport systems, they have higher wages and more productivity. Now they do have bigger populations, uh, generally, but, you know, Denmark's about our size of population, Ireland is about the same, much richer places. They have high tax rates. Why are we so obsessed with having low tax rates? We don't trust governments. Well, actually, it turns out we trust our government more than most other people trust their governments. But we've got it stuck in our heads that everyone needs a tax cut. Okay, Uh, G asks, uh, insist on living ever further from the city. I don't think people are choosing to live further and further away from city centres because they want to do that. True, it's because it's the only way they can get a house. And that's why we need lots and lots and lots of um, brownfields, medium density, good quality housing levy on residential land would encourage lifestyle blocks which are arguably a wasteful use of land how would that's interesting that would encourage lifestyle blocks um if you have a lot of land in a lifestyle block you're having to pay a lot of levy on it 0.1 percent and remember, um, for all of the land that doesn't have a house on it, you're paying the one percent. So I don't think that would have discouraged um, discourage uh, lifestyle blocks. I would have thought, gee, it's five thirteen. I better keep keep going. <laughs> um, is funding really the big problem stopping houses being built? It's more about our capability and capacity to build. Well, having watched what councils do, they're the ones who decide whether or not new suburbs get built give you a good example. Taranaki Street in Wellington, now, I don't know if you're from Wellington and you know it, but it is a place that's primed for apartment blocks. It's close to town, it's got lots of space. There's all these empty car parks, and it's just crazy. And a property developer thought, right, I've got a big space here, I want to build lots of houses on it. Went to the council, said, right, I want to build a 10-storey building that has 200 apartments. And the council said, oh, really? if you do that, and we're going to have to build a brand new pipe, and it's going to cost us $20 Yeah, nah. So the developer said, oh, I've got the land. I've got to do something with it. I know. I'll build, instead of 200 apartments, I'll build 60 townhouses, two storeys, not the most attractive things. But that's simply because the pipe on the road wasn't big enough and the council couldn't be bothered, or more importantly, didn't want to borrow the money to do it. And uh, that is the problem. It is an infrastructure funding problem at council level. Um, uh, just going down, um, ditch the climate name if you want it to be palatable, says Julian. Uh, Dara asks, what about addressing unoccupied properties? Yep, no, that's that's where... Um, uh, we could do some really interesting things with measuring water usage, uh, power usage, and frankly, good old-fashioned surveys. If I had a team of 20 journalists, one of the first things I'd do is knock on every door in the country and ask if anyone lives there. And then ask if there's no house on that piece of land, maybe it's a used car sales lot, work out who owns it, why it hasn't been turned into an apartment, who would like to turn it into an apartment, how much it's worth, and uh, what's needed to turn it into an apartment. Uh, yes, Gary makes a good point here. What about government agencies being forced to build on land they already own? Absolutely. Railways and NCTA. so much empty land. And you see it all over the place, often in fantastic places, just sitting there. That needs to have houses built on it. Or maybe it's a park that's right next to a big uh, apartment building or whatever. Uh, real estate agents Mm, yes well um, when you remove some of the investment incentives to buy houses a lot of that goes away by itself when you're so freaked about the idea of maybe missing out on that last 5% you might be more relaxed about selling it privately Um, real estate agents are fantastic at creating FOMO not just from buyers but from sellers as well Uh, build out the network following the shoreline Manukau harbour in one big loop Mm. this is good from DM I David Uh, yes I am keen on lots of houses on that on that um, isthmus Cliff Oh, my goodness, I'm so <laughs> so behind on my questions. Sorry about this, guys. Uh, instead of a capital gains tax, a wealth tax, which you seem to favour, how about instead controlling the magnitude of loan that can be taken to buy an existing house? Avoid the loan value ratchet. Yep, I mean, leverage is part of the issue. Trouble is, if you take an awful lot of leverage out of the market, it really does crash, uh, which wouldn't make anyone happy, and um, if it was big enough, it would stress the banks. Um ultimately you solve this problem with supply um, if there's lots of demand from money chasing houses more houses get built if there's no elasticity it's really hard to get new houses built and the price goes up um, what we really want is an incredibly flexible housing market I'm able to build houses at the at the mere waft of a um, banker going around the corner and uh, away we go and the prices don't go up so much um, uh, you don't have a double cab ute? No, I don't. <laughs> oh boy, double cab utes, don't get me started. Um, yeah, no, you're right, David, about renting and owning in apartments. It's tough. Pete McFarlane asks, in this talk about inflation, the commentariat citing housing costs, significant. Um, uh, yep, it's only the cost of the new build not the land which i think it should be um so in effect the real cost is higher and of course it all flows through into higher rents um lots of love for apartments uh huge uh, those room apartments are huge with underground car parks yeah that's the other issue we need to stop this need for car parks all over the place and um, you know, that's why you need them close to town and you really need to get big on uh, micro-mobility, i.e. lots of scooters, and uh, and also making it safe to cycle places. That's where you start, you know, halving roads. Instead of four, four lanes, you make it two lanes and those two of those lanes are for bikes and s- scooter riders and walkers. Um, two bedrooms, hundred square meters, whoa! Uh, that's, that's good. Uh, I, I'm just racing through these a bit now because I know I'm horribly late. Currently listening to this as I repaint our city fringe apartments, says DG. 10 meters from a coming train station. What is some capital gain for you there? And no ratings uplift capture yet. You're a winner. We'll never be home for the next 25 years, but a game changer for those. yeah, I mean it's great. But at the moment, if you own that land, um, you're the one who's the winner and it's unearned capital gains. John Irving writes, councils must recognise that the provision of free parking on any public road incurs a cost to all ratepayers. Yeah, there's a lot of entitlement here with with car parks. You know, we deserve it. Um, It's always been there. It's ours, you can't take it off us. Uh, Yet we need to move to um, uh, on-demand, transport as a service type things. I'm a big fan of Mevo and the likes. Um, You simply have a lot fewer cars if you're all using that car many times a day. Uh, Yes, no death duties, Bernard. Um, No, I will call it something else, won't we? An accumulated levy, how about that? That's triggered on passing? (laughs) Um, Yeah, Denmark's a good idea. Um, yep craig's talking about a dti ratio of three to four that is a good point and uh is a really interesting one to watch over the next year the reserve bank are wanting a dti tool They probably couldn't do three to four. That would destroy the market. No, but like five, six, seven, uh, and whether the government lets them do it will be an indicator of how weak they feel around the election. I'm still amazed there's 70 people here because I've blown my time horribly. I really appreciate that you all came. And I think I did get to the end of the list of the questions in the chat. Now, I'm going to go to the Q&A. Uh, Glenn asks, he heard the Adrian Orr's interview, do we know what the IMF think in response? Well, we heard the interviewer say that she thought it was impressive. Uh, And on the face of it, if you're in Europe or the States and you are grumpy about your bank being behind the curve, then New Zealand looks pretty good. Uh, Jane asks, um, there's been a lot of analysis of what's happening on housing and a bit in climate change. If you could th- throw a child poverty lens over what's happening recently, I see them all as the same thing. If you can solve your housing affordability issue by building lots of climate-friendly houses, that mean people don't have to jump in a double-cab <laughs> double ute or more likely a 20-year-old um, uh, Isuzu bighorn. Uh, blowing black smoke everywhere to get yourself um, and your kids to the three jobs and the two schools you're going to back and forth across South Auckland, Um, then you've solved three problems in one. Build a house, make sure people have cheaper climate zero transport and you go a long, long way to solving child poverty. People have stable, warm, dry homes, where they feel an ownership, they can start to connect to communities, they're not completely stressed because they've run out of money all the time, they're not being bounced from one private rental to the next, they're not being bounced from one school to the next. It's all the same thing, I think. And that's the central thesis, actually, of the kaka. That my role, and the thing I want to do for the next 10 years before I kaka it, is, um, is to cover everything, everything to do about finding the solution to our housing affordability and climate and child poverty crisis by ensuring we build lots of great affordable medium to high density houses in our bigger cities with great publicly available uh, and affordable transport that doesn't belch carbon out into the atmosphere Do it in a fast enough time so we don't lose another generation and make it a great place to stay if you've got skills and not have to jump across the Tasman. Uh, I don't want to be a politician. I'm not very good at many things. And um, the one thing I think I can have a crack at is, is trying to find solutions, debate the pros and cons, challenge the existing inaction, and um, create a community which discusses this day in, day out uh, for fun um, and be able to pay my bills, which is great. Um, so that's the lens I'm looking at it through, Jane. Hopefully that, um, that answered that. Um, Brett asks, do you think at any point Luxon will stop making gaffes? Which is to say, um, saying what he really thinks without running it past the PR people. I'm not sure he is saying what he really thinks. I think he thinks a lot of things and um, it depends how you answer something as to whether or not you're using what you think in the right way. Uh, he definitely needs to be grilled for a half an hour before every press conference by Hamish Rutherford or whoever is there uh, to make sure that he um, gets it right because uh, he isn't at the moment, and, and in a way that John Key didn't make that, those sorts of errors, it's bloody hard. He's only been in Parliament for less than two years. John Key had been there for four years before he was leader, and he had been the finance spokesman for quite a while as well, and on his feet in Parliament, having a crack at Michael Cullen and Helen Clark day in and day out for years. And uh, that helped. Unfortunately, Luxon didn't have the time and he's having to learn on the job. That's hard. But he's starting from a point that he and his party will be happy with, a head of Labour and with a um, a preferred PM rating, which is not that, but far below Jacinda Ardern's right now. So um, that's what I think on that. Anne asks... Oh, thank you, Anne. That's nice. uh, Saying that this morning's analysis was the best you'd seen. I appreciate that. Um, I enjoyed writing it. Um... Mm -hmm. The rain in spending line from Luxon. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a legitimate thing to say if you think we have a problem with too much stimulation from the government. But it makes it's incoherent though, if you don't suggest how to rein in the spending and what you'd cut. But also it's incoherent when national have actually said they would spend just as much as Labour, except they would just spend it on a tax cut. And they haven't explained whether or not that would be more or less inflationary than what the government's going to do with the money. So um, I think it's not a fully thought-through policy position, but it's a really easy one to throw out there as a politician. It's really easy to say, cost-of-living crisis. Government doesn't care about how you can't afford your bills anymore. And I'll give you the money through a tax cut. Well, actually have a look closer at that tax cut idea, almost all of the dollars go to people on higher incomes. Some work needs to be done on that policy position, I think. Uh, hopefully that's answered that one. Baz asks, could you please discuss a land tax? Ah! <laughs> I'm so pleased I spent an hour talking about that. Uh, thank you, Baz. Hopefully that answered your question. Um, uh, top potential disruptor yep i think there's there's room there for top to have a crack and uh raf's having a a good start um we'll see um they need to get up in the polls and become relevant to get anywhere near close to that sort of sweet spot which is three four percent where people start taking you seriously and don't worry about wasting their vote and he has a year to do that and the rest of top so we'll see whether that works Interesting, the Māori Party is growing and they are obviously able to swing both ways and they are very interested in this stuff. And um, it may well be that the Māori Party becomes that swing kingmaker vote, hopefully. Um, Nothing wrong with a double cab ute, says KP. I need mine for work and play. I think the latest car buying stats put me in much good company. You're absolutely right, KP. They are very popular, And they are a lot of fun to drive, and you can throw the bike in the back or the motorbike or the chainsaw or whatever it is. They're very practical. Um, But they are heavy, and they produce a lot of carbon dioxide, and if they're diesel-powered, they're putting a lot of particulates out there. Uh, What we need to give you KP is an electric double-cab ute, and they're out there. Uh, Have you seen the Rivian? Looks good. And um, even the F-150 Ford, there will be an electric Ford Ranger and an electric Toyota Hilux at some point, and not too far away, I think. It's really good to see, and here's a piece of news that I haven't put in uh, the dawn chorus yet, that um, Toyota, in the last couple of weeks, came out with a crash-hot SUV-looking electric car, which has got everyone freaked because it's so um, good and affordable and it's got a Toyota badge and looks like it could wipe the floor with Tesla and VW. And of course, Toyota is the dominant player in New Zealand alongside Ford. If there was an electric double cab ute Hilux or Ford Ranger, all our problems would be solved. (laughs) I'd quite like one of those, but I wouldn't pay 150k for it. Um, And that's where it's going to take some time. It's one of the reasons why we should have been much earlier in uh, effectively subsidising electric cars here so that we get on the um, distribution lists for the car makers. Because right now they look at New Zealand and go, useless, that vehicle's going to somewhere else. And the only thing going for us at the moment is that the Australians are even more useless than us. We might get some of the cars sent in our direction. Uh, so, KP, hoping for an electric double you for you sometime soon. Um, developers' margins. There's a question here from an anonymous attendee who asks, when are we going to talk about developers' margins and investment returns? Really good question, and so I need to do some work on that. And it's one of the reasons there has been this big inflation. But the thing is, when you have a boom-bust economy, where the developers believe in their bones that it's just a matter of time before there's a bust, and now's the time to make hay, of course you expand your margins, particularly when you know that it's really hard to be a property developer and get finance and get a consent and all of that. You know you've got market power. In that moment, when it's all going off and everyone's got FOMO and the banks are lending, of course you ramp up your margins. And um, you've got to get rid of that boom-bust and we've got to get rid of this... It's an investment it's not a house i think uh hopefully that that works there uh won't land tax put up rent and isn't the land tax what we already pay called rates well um yes that's how rates are collected although interesting a lot of councils have moved to capital value rating systems which i think is the mistake um Will it put up rent? Well, no. If you've got lots of new houses coming onto the market and not enough people bidding for them, the rents will go down. And we have actually seen that a little bit, um, particularly in the central CBD Auckland area without those students. Uh, And you go to Sydney and Melbourne, when you build a lot of apartments in a place and there aren't enough people, the rents go down. It doesn't matter what the prices or what the costs are. And part of the reason for the rent inflation, I think, here is that Yes, the new standards have taken a bunch of um, property out of the market and therefore the supply is reduced and the rents have increased. Now, we needed to do that because they were unlivable places and unfortunately the fallout has been a whole bunch of people who live in, a, live in motels. But we just desperately need to improve the quality of our housing. That's one way to do it. I would have preferred we just built a whole lot of brand new houses but um, it had to be done. Uh and KP asks, do you think it's likely that the PM will announce her departure sometime early next year and prior to the next election? Doesn't matter what I think or know. I don't actually know. And I don't think the Prime Minister knows, or the Finance Minister. It depends, is the answer. But I think it's a good question, and I think it's a non-negligible chance that the Prime Minister decides to retire before the next election and hands over to Grant Robertson. But how likely? No idea. It's not 0%, but I wouldn't say it's 100% either. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Is Luxon's proposal to cancel the 39% rate just another attempt to promote the trickle down philosophy. Yes. And I think he's wrong. And I wish he'd thought about it a bit more and talked to some, you know, even the conservative experts realize that it's wrong. Have a chat to people like BlackRock, Larry Fink. He'd respect Larry Fink. And Larry Fink rang him up and said, "Hey, Christopher Luxon, it's Larry Fink here of BlackRock." That would get his attention. And then Larry Fink would talk about how rising inequality is bad for capitalism and that it needs to be solved with redistribution of wealth. It's as if Christopher Luxon has this 2007 view of the world, where, yeah, a lot of people on the centre-right believed that was true. A lot of people on the centre-left did too. But we know after the global financial crisis that it's not true. Wealth gets concentrated. It reduces productivity and well-being. It increases political uh, volatility and risk. It's stopping us from dealing with our major challenges, climate change. It's the reason we've got... We had Donald Trump. It's the reason Putin thought he could get away with Ukraine. Anyway, Um, yes is the answer. (laughs) Uh, Oh, and KP asks... Okay KP. KP has just asked... Can the electric double cab ute tow a boat or caravan? And I'm going to spend literally two seconds, and if you want to bear with me, uh, I will um, show you that it can. So uh, let me find here... Uh, there's a thing called the... r want you I will send you a link. I'll put it into the... Um, Uh, here we go Uh, towing capacity up to 7,700 pounds (laughs) 0 to 60 miles per hour so 0 to 100 almost in 3 seconds (laughs) I wonder if that's with the boat or the caravan (laughs) on the back (laughs) okay KP here we go let me put this into the list here Uh, uh, where are we here oh yes Um, here we go let's put this kp Rivian 7,700 pounds towing capacity and I'll do the numbers on that Uh, 7,700 pounds equals Three thousand four hundred kg. That'll do. Okay, I think I've answered that. One. <laughs> I think I've answered that one. I hope that might be the last one. Um, uh, capacity. Okay. Now there are a few more questions in there. I think I'm going to have to um, call it a day. And uh, say thank you so much to everyone for attending who's still there. And um, I know it's been unusual, you know, one man band today. We're really looking forward to have Peter back. There's a question at the at the bottom. We're we going to have more world reviews. Yes, Janae, we will. Um, uh, but we wanted to mix it up a bit today, and sort of had to because Peter couldn't make it, and I couldn't get anyone else on. But there's lots of great world topics we'll get to, and. Um, Hopefully we will have satisfied the um, intense and justified desire for information and debate about housing, interest rates, climate change and a few of those things, which are all tied up with the global situation. Um, You know, Russia invaded Ukraine because it thought it could get away with it because Germany decided that it could rely on Russia for its oil and gas so it could turn off its nuclear power and believed that um, it would be fine. Russia knew that, took advantage of it and invaded Ukraine. Now Germany is having to have the most awful and painful move to cut the fossil fuel out of its economy. And fossil fuel is largely produced in places that are corrupt and dangerous, It's another reason why we need to get off fossil fuels because um, it makes the world a less stable place politically, apart from anything else, apart from climatically. Okay, hey, I'm going to go, everyone. (laughs) You'll be sick of the sight of me. Um, So wonderful to see you and fantastic questions. That's the best we've had. And um, I wish you all a, a great long weekend. And thank you for subscribing and allowing me to have such fun doing this stuff. Kakite ano everyone. Bye bye.